Chapter Eight of Puddenhead Wilson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Tragedy of Puddenhead Wilson by Mark Twain. Chapter Eight. Mars Tom tramples his chance. The holy passion of friendship is of so sweet and steady and loyal and enduring a nature that it will last through a whole lifetime if not asked to lend money. Puddenhead Wilson's Calendar. Consider well the proportions of things. It is better to be a young June bug than an old bird of paradise. Puddenhead Wilson's Calendar. It is necessary now to hunt up Roxy. At the time she was set free and went away chambermaiding, she was thirty-five. She got a berth as second chambermaid on a Cincinnati boat in the New Orleans trade, the Grand Mogul. A couple of trips made her wanted and easy-going at the work, and infatuated her with the stir and adventure and independence of steamboat life. Then she was promoted, and become head chambermaid. She was a favorite with the officers, and exceedingly proud of their joking and friendly way with her. During eight years she served three parts of the year on that boat, and the winters on a Vicksburg packet. But now for two months she had had rheumatism in her arms and was obliged to let the wash-tub alone. So she resigned. But she was well fixed, rich, as she would have described it, for she had lived a steady life and had banked four dollars every month in New Orleans as a provision for her old age. She said in the start that she had put shoes on one bar-footed nigger to trample on her with, and that one mistake like that was enough. She would be independent of the human race thenceforth forevermore if hard work and economy could accomplish it. When the boat touched the levee at New Orleans, she bade good-bye to her comrades on the Grand Mogul and moved her kit ashore. But she was back in an hour. The bank had gone to smash and carried her four hundred dollars with it. She was a pauper and homeless, also disabled bodily, at least for the present. The officers were full of sympathy for her in her trouble, and made up a little purse for her. She resolved to go to her birthplace. She had friends there among the negroes, and the unfortunate always helped the unfortunate. She was well aware of that. Those lowly comrades of her youth would not let her starve. She took the little local packet at Cairo, and now she was on the home stretch. Time had worn away her bitterness against her son, and she was able to think of him with serenity. She put the vile side of him out of her mind, and dwelt only on recollections of his occasional acts of kindness to her. She gilded and otherwise decorated these, and made them very pleasant to contemplate. She began to long to see him. She would go and fawn upon him slave-like, for this would have to be her attitude, of course. And maybe she would find that time had modified him, and that he would be glad to see his long-forgotten old nurse and treat her gently. That would be lovely. That would make her forget her woes and her poverty. Her poverty! That thought inspired her to add another castle to her dream. Maybe he would give her a trifle now and then. Maybe a dollar, once a month, say. Any little thing like that would help, oh, ever so much. By the time she reached Dawson's Landing, she was her old self again. Her blues were gone. She was in high feather. She would get along, surely. There were many kitchens where servants would share their meals with her, and also steal sugar and apples and other dainties for her to carry home, or give her a chance to pilfer them herself, which would answer just as well. 
and there was the church. She was a more rabid and devoted Methodist than ever, and her piety was no sham, but was strong and sincere. Yes, with plenty of creature comforts and her old place in the Amen corner in her possession again, she would be perfectly happy and at peace thenceforward to the end. She went to Judge Driscoll's kitchen first of all. She was received there in great form and with vast enthusiasm. Her wonderful travels and the strange countries she had seen and the adventures she had had made her a marvel and a heroine of romance. The negroes hung enchanted upon a great story of her experiences, interrupting her all along with eager questions, with laughter, exclamations of delight, and expressions of applause. And she was obliged to confess to herself that if there was anything better in this world than steamboating, it was the glory to be got by telling about it. The audience loaded her stomach with their dinners, and then stole the pantry bare to load up her basket. Tom was in St. Louis. The servant said he had spent the best part of his time there during the previous two years. Roxy came every day and had many talks about the family and its affairs. Once she asked why Tom was away so much. The ostensible chambers said, "'Fact is, old master can get along better when young master's away than he can when he's in the town. Yes, and they love him better, too. So he gives him fifty dollars a month.' "'No, that's so. Chambers, you's a joking, ain't you?' Clare, no to goodness I ain't, Mammy. Mars Tom told me so his own self. But ne mind, tain't enough. My land, what a reason tain't enough? Well, I's going to tell you, if you give me a chance, Mammy. The reason tain't enough is cause Mars Tom gambles. Roxy threw up her hands in astonishment, and Chambers went on. Old Massa found it out, cause he had to pay two hundred dollars for Mars Tom's gambling debts, and that's true, Mammy just as dead certain as you's born. Two hundred dollars? Why, what is you talking about? Two hundred dollars? Sakes alive, it's most enough to buy a tolerable good second-hand nigger with. And you ain't lying, honey. You wouldn't lie to your old mammy. It's God's own truth, just as I tell you. Two hundred dollars. I wish I may never stir out in my tracks, if it ain't so. And, oh, my land, old Mars was just a hoppin'. He was bilin' mad, I tell you. He tuck and disinherit him. Disinwitched him? Disinherit him. What's that? What do you mean? Means he busted the will. Busted the will. He wouldn't ever treat him so. Take it back, you miserable imitation nigger that I bore in sorrow and tribulation. Roxy's pet castle, an occasional dollar from Tom's pocket, was tumbling to ruin before her eyes. She could not abide such a disaster as that. She couldn't endure the thought of it. Her remark amused Chambers. "'Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just listen to that. If I's imitation, what is you? Both of us is imitation white. That's what we is. And powerful good imitation, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't mount to nothing as imitation niggers. And as for—' Shut up, you foolin', for I knock you side ahead, and tell me about the will. Tell me taint busted, do, honey, and I'll never forget you. Well, taint. Case day's a new one made, and Mars Tom all right again. But what is you in such a sweat about it for, Mammy? Taint none of your business, I don't reckon. Taint none of my business. Whose business is it then? I'd like to know. Was I his mother till he was fifteen years old, or wasn't I? You answer me dat. And you expect I could see him turned out poor and ordinary on the world and never care nothing about it? 
I reckon if you'd ever been a mother yourself, valet de chambers, you wouldn't talk such foolishness dat. Well, den, old Mars forgive him and fixed up de will again. Do dat satisfy you? Yes, she was satisfied now, and quite happy and sentimental over it. She kept coming daily, and at last she was told that Tom had come home. She began to tremble with emotion, and straightway sent to beg him to let his poor old nigger mammy have just one sight of him and die for joy. Tom was stretched at his lazy ease on a sofa when Chambers brought the petition. Time had not modified his ancient detestation of the humble drudge and protector of his boyhood. It was still bitter and uncompromising. He sat up and bent a severe gaze upon the face of the young fellow whose name he was unconsciously using, and whose family rights he was enjoying. He maintained the gaze until the victim of it had become satisfactorily pallid with terror. Then he said, "'What does that old rib want with me?' The petition was meekly repeated. "'Who gave you permission to come and disturb me with the social attentions of niggers?' Tom had risen. The other young man was trembling now, visibly. He saw what was coming, and bent his head sideways and put up his left arm to shield it. Tom rained cuffs upon the head and its shield, saying no word. The victim received each blow with a beseeching, "'Please, Mars Tom! Oh, please, Mars Tom!' seven blows. Then Tom said, "'Face the door! March!' He followed behind with one, two, three solid kicks. The last one helped the pure white slave over the door-sill, and he limped away, mopping his eyes with his old ragged sleeve. Tom shouted after him, "'Send her in!' Then he flung himself panting on the sofa again, and rasped out the remark, "'He arrived just at the right moment. I was full to the brim with bitter thinkings, and nobody to take it out of. How refreshing it was! I feel better!' Tom's mother entered now, closing the door behind her, and approached her son with all the wheedling and supplication servilities that fear and interest can impart to the words and attitudes of the born slave. She stopped a yard from her boy, and made two or three admiring exclamations over his manly stature and general handsomeness, and Tom put an arm under his head and hoisted a leg over the sofa-back, in order to look properly indifferent. "'My land, how you is growed, honey! Clar to goodness! I wouldn't a knowed you, Mars Tom! Deed I wouldn't! Look at me good! Does you remember old Roxy? Does you know your old nigger mammy, honey? Well, now, I can lay down and die in peace, cause I've seen— Cut it short, goddammit! Cut it short! What is it you want? You hear that? Just the same old Mars Tom, all so gay and funnin' with the old mammy. I's just as short— Cut it short, I tell you, and get along! What do you want? This was a bitter disappointment. Roxy had for so many days nourished and fondled and petted her notion that Tom would be glad to see his old nurse, and would make her proud and happy to the marrow with a cordial word or two, that it took two rebuffs to convince her that he was not funning, and that her beautiful dream was a fond and foolish variety, a shabby and pitiful mistake. She was hurt to the heart, and so ashamed that for a moment she did not quite know what to do or how to act. Then her breast began to heave. The tears came, and in her forlornness she was moved to try that other dream of hers, an appeal to her boy's charity. And so, upon the impulse, and without reflection, she offered her supplication. "'Oh, Mars Tom, de poor old mammy is in sich hard luck these days, and she's kind of crippled in the arms and can't work, and if you could give me a dollar, 
only just one little doll tom was on his feet so suddenly that the supplicant was startled into a jump herself a dollar give you a dollar i've a notion to strangle you is that your errand here clear out and be quick about it roxy backed slowly toward the door when she was halfway she stopped and said mournfully mars tom i nursed you when you was a little baby and i raised you all by myself till you was most a young man and now you is young and rich and i is poor and gittin old and i come here believin that you would help de old mammy long down de old road dat's left twixt her and de grave and tom relished this tune less than any that had preceded it for he began to wake up a sort of echo in his conscience so he interrupted and said with decision though without asperity that he was not in a situation to help her and wasn't going to do it ain't you ever going to help me mars tom no now go away and don't bother me any more roxy's head was down in an attitude of humility but now the fires of her old wrongs flamed up in her breast and began to burn fiercely she raised her head slowly till it was well up and at the same time her great frame unconsciously assumed an erect and masterful attitude with all the majesty and grace of her vanished youth in it she raised her finger and punctuated with it you has said de word you has had your chance and you has trampled it under your foot when you git another one you'll git down on your knees and beg for it a cold chill went to tom's heart and he didn't know why for he did not reflect that such words from such an incongruous source and so solemnly delivered could not easily fail of that effect however he did the natural thing he replied with bluster and mockery you'll give me a chance you perhaps i'd better get down on my knees now but in case i don't just for argument's sake what's going to happen pray dis is was gwine to happen i's gwine as straight to your uncle as i can walk and tell him every last thing i knows about you tom's cheek blenched and she saw it disturbing thoughts began to chase each other through his head how can she know and yet she must have found out she looks it i've had the will back only three months and i'm already deep in debt again and moving heaven and earth to save myself from exposure and destruction with a reasonably fair show of getting the thing covered up if i'm let alone and now this fiend has gone and found me out somehow or other i wonder how much she knows oh, oh, oh it's it's enough to break a body's heart but i've got to humor her there's no other way then he worked up a rather sickly sample of a gay laugh and a hollow chipperness of manner and said well well roxy dear old friends like you and me mustn't quarrel here's your dollar uh, now tell me what you know he held out the wildcat bill she stood as she was and made no movement it was her turn to scorn persuasive foolery now and she did not waste it she said with a grim implacability in voice and manner which made tom almost realize that even a former slave can remember for ten minutes insults and injuries returned for compliments and flatteries received and can also enjoy taking revenge for them when the opportunity offers what does i know i'll tell you what i knows i knows enough to bust dat will to flinders and more mind you more tom was aghast more he said what do you call more where is there any room for more roxy laughed a mocking laugh and said scoffingly with a toss of her head and her hands on her hip yes oh i reckon cause you'd like to know with your poor little old rag dollar what you reckon i's going to tell you for you ain't got no money i's going to tell your uncle and i'll do it dis minute too he'll give me five dollars for de news and mighty glad too 
She swung herself around disdainfully and started away. Tom was in a panic. He seized her skirts and implored her to wait. She turned and said loftily, "'Look here! What is it I told you? You—you—I you, I don't remember anything. What was it you told me?' I told you that the next time I give you a chance you'd get down on your knees and beg for it." Tom was stupefied for a moment. He was panting with excitement. Then he said, "'Oh, Roxy, you wouldn't require your young master to do such a horrible thing. You can't mean it. I'll tell you now, mighty quick, whether I means it or not. You call me names, and as good as spit on me when I comes here, poin' ordinary and umble to praise you for being growed up so fine and handsome, and tell you how I used to nuss you and tend you and watch you when you was sick and hadn't no mother but me in the whole world, and beg you to give the poor old nigger a dollar for to get her something to eat, and you call me names, names, dad blame you. Yes, sir, I gives you just one chance more, and that's now, and it lasts only half a second, you hear? Tom slumped to his knees and began to beg, saying, "'You see, I'm begging, and it's honest begging, too. Now tell me, Roxy, tell me.' The heir of two centuries of unatoned insult and outrage looked down on him and seemed to drink in deep draughts of satisfaction. Then she said, "'Fine, nice young white gentleman kneeling down to a nigger wench. I's wanted to see dat just once before I's called. Now, Gabriel, blow de horn. I's ready.' get up tom did it he said humbly now roxy don't punish me any more i deserved what i've got but be good and let me off with that don't go to uncle tell me i'll give you the five dollars yes i bet you will and you won't stop dare another but i ain't gwine to tell you here good gracious no is you feared o de haunted house N no well then you come to de haunted house bout ten eleven tonight and climb up de ladder, cause the star-steps is broke down, and you'll find me. I's a-roostin' in the haunted house, cause I can't afford to roost nowheres else." She started toward the door, but stopped and said, "'Give me the dollar bill.' He gave it to her. She examined it and said, "'Hm, like enough the bank's busted.' She started again, but halted again. "'Has you got any whiskey?' "'Yes, a little.' "'Fetch it.' He ran to his room overhead and brought down a bottle which was two-thirds full. She tilted it up and took a drink. Her eyes sparked with satisfaction, and she tucked the bottle under her shawl, saying, "'It's prime. I'll take it along.' Tom humbly held the door for her, and she marched out as grim and erect as a grenadier. End of chapter 8